Welcome to Inspired Men Talk, four solution-focused therapists born in four different decades who openly and honestly discuss their perspective on the issues surrounding men's mental health. The things that stigma says we don't talk about. This week we have a very special guest on the show, his name is G, and we're coming on today to talk about Banter Part 2. So as some of you will remember that we did an episode uh, a couple of weeks back now talking about banter and when does banter actually become bullying? G reached out to me and said he would have loved to have been on the podcast. So he's here this week to join us. Um, G, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah. Hi, Ben. Um, my name is G, uh, the protagonist of the BAFTA winning film, The Black Cop from 2023. Uh, also National Diversity Award Positive Role Model of the Year, 2023. Uh, and Ben's friend. 2023 <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit longer than that g wasn't yeah, it yeah I know. <laughs> <laughs> um i was a former police officer in the metropolitan police in london i'm a facilitator by trade i run a company called uh purple frog connections which basically is about um creating space for courageous conversations to take place um and getting people to talk about what really matters and you know, in a safe space. So I basically I hold space for those conversations to to happen. Excellent. In and short, uh, yeah. Mm. And obviously, I've had the real privilege um, through my career and through my training um, to be a inspector in the police. Of you actually coming and delivering your talk, and that's how I got to meet you. And mm. uh, the the impact you had from the delivery was phenomenal. And I'm very grateful thank to have you, you as a friend. And thank you very much for coming on the show today. As usual, we've got our group of four on. So we've got Gary, Peter and Chris with us as well. But we're going to jump straight in. So, gee, banter, part two. Can I ask a question first, Ben? Go for yeah. it, yeah. What would be useful for me? Because this is the part two. So what kind of happened in part one? So in part one, we were talking about when does banter become bullying? And when does that effectively that fine line get crossed is it good to have banter is it bad to have banter and what sort of the impact is in the workplace what we kind of came to the conclusion in our little bit was is that banter is needed for some people to get through those dark times it's a crucial part of being able to get through some of the rough things that people see and banter that takes place between two individuals when they're good friends is generally okay and acceptable but it starts to go there's a little bit astray when other people join in and think that they can use the same banter or when someone picks up on something and uses it to berate an individual and it's a consistent theme that they continue to deliver each time, which actually turns into bullying. So obviously you've got a wealth of experience from your background and your experiences from joining the police. What's your take on banter? I mean, basically summed up what you've just said there. There's, um, a fine line between banter being bullying and banter being uh, uniting, if that makes sense. Um, but also, it's, it, it, it's it's a difficult area because what what do you define as banter? You know, because one man's banter could be another man's sense of humour, so to speak. Uh, and and where do you draw that line? And and who has the responsibility? for defining banter yeah i i I, it's gary here i think that's a really Mm. good question i'm ex-services i'm into my rugby i run nightclubs and bars and restaurants 
and I'm now a therapist. And in each arena, it's been very different. So in mm. the air, in the air force, the level of banter in any other sphere would definitely be bullying. You know, and and maybe I was, you know, I'm I'm the old man of the group, as they they keep telling me in their banterish ways. Um, but there you go, case in point. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but it's but it's you know what what was done then wouldn't be allowed now. You'd be drummed out of the forces for that. But it was acceptable then. Whether it was right or wrong, I don't know. But it was a cultural thing. In the, on the rugby field, you can be, you know, quite aggressive with it, quite pointed with it. But everybody's in it together. You'd be fighting on a rugby pitch and then drinking in your bar in the evening together. So it was an acceptable thing. You know, I think there's. Well, sorry. So it's, well, it just changes with the thing and i think nowadays we don't know it but my issue is you do get those people who weaponize it yeah and 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 i was uh, yeah sorry sorry i I love the fact you keep pausing and (laughs) i keep thinking that (laughs) well that would be ben's issue (laughs) (laughs) because i mean where i was going to come in there gary was there's also that weaponized where we use it against ourselves uh, and the reason why I say that is because I did that early in my career. Part of my reason for joining the police when I first joined, or part of the reason for that, I grew up at a time where I was ashamed to be black. Wow. Um, because everything around me told me that black was negative. So part of my reason for joining the police was I wanted something to say that I could say, I'm one of you, I'm not one of them. Mm. Um, So I was one of the people in the canteen who told the racist jokes. Yes. I told the homophobic jokes. I invited the banter because I felt that that's what I needed to do to fit in. I think that's a really good thing you've touched on there. And I think that's not something that we brought up in our last conversation about banter, but actually now you've said it, you see that a lot. And, and I think we're all probably guilty of that a little bit. You'll, you'll take it on the chin, as, as it were, just to be part of the group. Or mm. if you've already got that name for yourself for being the, the clown of the group, you will continue living up to that, even if it isn't quite where you want to be. Mm. To maintain your position in the group, you'll keep living up to that expectation you made a bad joke once and now that's that's who you are so you've got to keep up with that to stay as your position keep your position in the group so that's a really really interesting point you've made there and i see it quite a lot um i'm a scout leader um and i see it quite a lot with the young kids so um there's one that comes to mind obviously i'm not going to name them there's one that comes to mind that um he he's got this bit of a reputation for being that really silly stupid clownish character and he's not stupid but he will act as a stupid person because that's what everybody expects you know and then he is subject to the banter for that but like you say he's almost inviting that on himself because that's where he feels his position is that's where he adds the value of people laughing but they're laughing at him not with him but that's all he knows how to do now and he's sort of trapped in that that area so that's a really really interesting point they've touched on there that you can turn banter on yourself 
Yeah. I well, mean, one of the things it? I do was... It, Sorry. No, that's right. It, yeah, I mean, it's most like that's the way that you get it to unite, get yourself to unite with the rest yeah. of the group. Right, so when everybody's doing it, so like when you're going through a difficult time, everybody's doing the banter. But if you're not going through a difficult time, but you feel on the outside, it's your way of kind of becoming part of the group, right? It's your way of uniting yourself with that group or associating yourself with that group by making yourself either the focus of ridicule or, I mean, I do a little bit of stand-up comedy, just so you know, G, and, and you know, it, being that being that person that you you kind of then feel like you're fitting in and it's your way to kind of say hey everybody look at me i am like you i fit in and that's what i i kind of had it when i was at when i was younger at school that was my kind of banter piece was to help me fit in with the group of people around me. but it's 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 the question and the question and i ask this question when i do groups is what do we give up to fit in because that's the thing there's there's fitting in to be part of the group but there's also how much do I sacrifice of myself to want to be part of that group? And for me, I sacrificed my color. I sacrificed my sexual orientation. I made myself miserable mm. because I felt that's what I needed to do. If, if they see me for this big black guy, they're not going to like me. So how can I make myself fit in? Uh, I've um, that statement you made earlier that you brought it in on yourself and mm. you didn't want to be seen as the black guy mm. that's really upset me yeah. and nothing upsets me just so you know yeah. I don't do upset very much but it took me straight back to being young in the Air Force and coming from South London in Croydon oh. and seeing, and I'm just gone back to a lot of close friends I had who was of colour or whatever they were, who, and even some stuff I did myself to fit in. And I just realised that they were being what I needed them to be rather than who they were. And that came from so much and i'm just sitting here thinking wow how powerful that statement is just in because that's got nothing to do with what i would call banter but because i didn't know or i didn't recognize or i couldn't see because of my age or my stupidity or whatever i didn't know that that wasn't somebody being just yeah. enjoying it I, so i couldn't not be that and then i actually maybe made it worse yeah wow. and, and i'm sorry the thing, <laughs> no thank you thank you for saying that um gary i mean the thing about it though is that there's there's and uh, if you see my film there's a picture in my film that's of an incident and it always sort of like drags people down and basically what happened was when i was at hendon as a new recruit i was desperate to fit in and there was a moment where uh, some guys burst into my room uh, in the, in, under the umbrella of banter and said, you're the wrong color to be in this job. But okay, we know how to do it right and sort it out. And they took, so I had some shoe whitener on the shelf, which they took and they painted me white. And they said, there you go, now you fit in. And we took a photograph together 
because we all were in the banter. Now, if you asked the me then, what was I doing? Or what was I thinking? As far as I was concerned, that was banter. And I was okay with it then. As I've grown up and looked back on it, it's like, what the hell was I doing? But also people have said, well, why didn't you report it? I said, because all of us in that picture were acting based on our level of awareness and understanding at that time. But every one of us has to take responsibility for our part in that picture. I'm not going to go to them because I allowed them to do it to me. That picture still stops me in my tracks every time I see it. Mm. Still sends chills down my spine. I look at it and I think, wow, Christ, what was going on? You know, if we look at from then to now, do you think it's changed or do you think it's just in a different disguise? I think it's I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. I mean, when you listen to some of the political rhetoric that's coming out nowadays, and it's it's coming from a place of polarization, and I think that when we're in that place of polarizing, we're increasing the banter playing field, so to speak. Yeah, but there's a more um, insidious element to it now. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it's not it's not coming from a humorous place. Do you think there's still a place for banter? I mean, we you know, and I, I appreciate what you're saying, and I think you know, yeah. If we if we look at that sort of polarization, and we look at actually, we've almost got this cancel culture going on, haven't we? And that yeah. nothing can happen, and that everything we do now is wrong in one yeah. shape or another because it gets put on social media, and everybody's shot down for it. And we also see large organizations making sweeping statements across the board to try and eradicate banter but actually what that all that does in turn is is turn into banter that they've sent it in yeah. the first place and they don't actually address the underlying issues around it and what you do is that you actually force it on the ground yeah right then you start to get the the whatsapp groups uh, um, and then the, other, the, the the downside of that, one of the downsides of the WhatsApp group, one of the painful things, that if you're somebody from a marginalized group, whether that be color, gender, sexual orientation, whatever, and you're there, you don't know who's in those WhatsApp groups. Hmm. So you may not actually hear the banter or see the jokes, but you're aware that it's happening and you don't know whether it's about you or not. You don't know whether the person next to you is one of the people in that group. And that's yeah. why I talk about the insidious nature of it. I mean, going back to the thing is, I think there's a space for, especially in the police service or emergency services or some of the armed forces, there's a space for the for some of that dark humour and that dark banter because it's a kind of stress relief. But it's it's how that's managed. It's whether or not supervisors or leaders or managers know how to manage that stuff. Yeah, definitely. That's, uh, that's a really valid point because as as you were talking, I, I I kind of made a little. I've been asking myself little questions like, you know, do we need better guidance on how to do banter? Mm. Because when it's in the open, it's a really positive thing, as you say. It's there to mm. help with that stress relief. I think there was a a photograph after build of a lot of um, firemen sitting down and they were all smiling and laughing, you know. And obviously, that was a really difficult situation. Obviously, someone said something to break the tension yeah. for them. Yeah. Right. 
Um, but it was an in-joke for those people that were sat there then, and then people seeing the photograph afterwards got really offended by it, or, or mm. some did anyway. And I think that's it. If it's hidden, if banter is hidden, or it, it, the suspicion starts to come around, are they talking about me? And if they're talking about me, can't they talk about me openly? What What is it that they're saying? And all of a sudden, people get stuck in their own heads. It's funny because I, I saw something of Jimmy Carr, the comedian, and he gets in hot water, you might say, because his humour, the stuff he puts out, is apparently very close to the knuckle. Mm. And But is it close to the knuckle or is it comedy? And we are getting getting upset. I, I don't, don't know the right word. I'm searching for the right word, but everything is offensive mm. everything so when does humor become offensive or is it that we're taking everything too seriously we're always now looking for a problem rather than seeing it for what it is and it, you know because people are now going i'm i find that offensive and it's just like it was a joke so okay. You've kind of taken the next question out of my mouth here, Gary, that was going around in my brain. And that and that was, what's the stance on the point of banter when you're maybe having genuine banter between you and your friend, but someone else comes in and takes offence to it? I think we touched on this a little bit last time we covered banter, didn't we? Yeah. And, yeah, it is that. I think one of the things I said last time was, I think there's this line between this is an offensive joke or it was an individual was offended by it. So there's a, I think there's a difference that needs to be found between what's offensive and what offended you as an individual. Because like you said, if me and you are having a joke between ourselves, but then Peter walked in and heard the overheard the joke and was a bit like, Oh, that's a bit out of my taste. I don't quite like that. That's offensive. Me and you weren't offended by it. We were having a, joke between ourselves it didn't offend either party involved but it offended peter but then that then becomes a question well does that mean we're not allowed to have our conversations just in case there was I mean the firemen are not allowed to smile if somebody cracks a joke because somebody's going to take a picture and it's going to offend thousands of people you know it's where that line is between it's an offensive thing like painting somebody a different color which is clearly offensive or it's something that is taken out of context that has offended somebody because they weren't in the conversation that was there. And I think you've used the, the word there that I was waiting for. You said it context. It is, it is about context because um, I, I, the way I talk about it, when I talk about it in, in my groups, I say there's what I call agenda A conversations and agenda B conversations. Right? Agenda A conversations are the conversations we have in the workplace, the standards we're expected, the professional conversations. Mm. Agenda B conversations is where the banter takes place. Right? Now, I say if you have an agenda B conversation in an agenda A environment, you're in play. Mm. I like that. That's a really, really yeah, good take yeah, on that, actually. Mm. And that's the sort of thing I think it comes back to that education, doesn't it? Yeah. And it comes back to that's the sort of things that people should be learning from a young age. Yeah. You know, yeah. as a scout leader, that's the sort of um, things I should be 
teaching the young people, you know, there's a time and a place effectively. There's a time and a place and know you your know. audience. Yeah, absolutely. And it takes a bit of social intelligence. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but also at the same which, time is that there's that part of it. I mean, I remember it's not a banter thing, but it goes to that point. I was doing, I don't know if you're aware of the, um, what would you like said at your funeral exercise? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, writing uh, your own. At my age, it's something what sort of like people keep sending me, you know, memes about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, but, you know, I, I remember I was doing that exercise with a group. And somebody in the group who just lost a relative started to have a go at me that you were very insensitive, you were very dissonant. And so I stopped. I said, hold on, hold on. What do you think the intention was? Right? Was Do you think I came in here with the intention to offend you or to upset you? Right? Why are you asking me to take responsibility for something that I wasn't aware of? Right? Yeah. It wasn't my intention to hurt you. I'm sorry that you feel hurt. And I'm sorry that this tapped into or triggered you in some way. But I'm asking you also to appreciate that that wasn't my intention. Yeah. And have an adult conversation around it. I think sometimes we want, we look for, yeah. I, I, I remember somebody taught me this thing about, we all carry a bag of shit. Right? And there are some people who want other people to carry their bag of shit for them. And they look for shit carriers. So they'll come up to you and say, oh, this is my shit. I'm giving it to you. And what we do is like, oh, I'm sorry. Um, I don't want to. The skill is to be able to say thank you, but this actually belongs to you. Yeah. yeah. It's not my shit. I, I, I talk about a pen. Will you take the, yeah. Will you take that, that end of the pen, the shitty end yeah. of the pen? And it's your choice whether you take it or not. Yeah. You yeah. know, and, and I, I, I've actually, you know, Unfortunately, people I'm finding are saying you've got to make sure what you deliver would not offend mm. anyone at any level, on any level, Which in any shape or form. And if you do, so you were offensive on that day because you didn't think that somebody in that room might be offended by a simple exercise which was never intended to upset anyone but you didn't you wasn't mindful of everybody wow but then the thing is you can't be you see that's 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 the thing is that i i look at when people talk about diversity and stuff like that for me the definition of diversity for me is learning to know that you don't know mm. because when you know you don't know i think there's this pressure to say you have to know everything if you've never engaged with the trans community, you're not going to know about the subtleties of it. If you've never engaged with the Nigerian community or the Yoruba people, mm. for example, yeah. right? You know, it's not about being black. Let's take it down to the Yoruba people or the Yoruba people from a particular town who mm. have a you know, we're not meant to know all those details. Yeah. Right? And I, I and I think part of that, part of it, the healthy conversation is. If that happens, it's not what happens, it's how we deal with it. How do we have a conversation? What's the learning here? And, yeah, and that, that's the conversation we don't have. Yeah, and I don't think anybody now accepts that 
if you don't know, it's your fault, your problem is what they're saying rather than let yeah. me educate you. Well, yeah. I, you know, I know that me and Ben have had a couple of conversations and one of the podcasts we talked about um, recently was I'm a middle-aged white man. Mm. Okay. I'm heterosexual. Mm. And he, and Ben, he upset me a little bit because Ben said there are gay men who won't come to see you because they don't believe you'll get it. And I've mm. seen many people of every orita- orientation, mm. but there's 50 shades mm. of gay, apparently, mm. and bisexual and all the different gender uh, differences. And it's not about me. It's about they know what they're going through. I, I ain't got a clue. Mm. And it's like, yeah, they're right. I don't know nothing. <laughs> And I accept I don't know nothing, so I won't go tell, you know, I know what you're going through. Mm. And But most people won't accept that. But they don't yeah, and I, and I think it's also about, I mean, one of the things I do, like I've worked with all sorts of groups mm. uh, from all sorts of backgrounds. And, and the thing that I, how I work it in my head is that I'm not here. Okay, yeah, put it into a story. I was working with a very, very senior police officer around some trans stuff. And she said to me, she goes, gee, I don't get this trans stuff. I really don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. And I said, it's not yours to make sense of. And she goes, what do you mean? I said, all you need to do is to recognize that for that group of people, this is their issue or these are their issues. You just have to accept that that's their issues. You don't need to know issues. You just have to be open enough to hear them, to engage with them and be friendly with them. But you don't need to, I don't need to know what your issue is. I just need to respect the fact that you have one. I don't need to know what your story is. I just need to respect the fact that you have one. My role is to hold space for you to explore your story. Not to tell you your story. Not to be part of your story. But to allow you to explore it for yourself. You know, all the things you're saying, G, it follows a lot of our principles because mm. as we are all therapists, we're solution-focused therapists. Mm. So everything you're saying really mirrors that ethos and that culture that we use on a day-to-day basis. We don't need to go over what your issues are mm. to help you on your path forward. You know, we're solution-focused. We're looking at the goals, the what mm. we can get to. And I think if you take that solution-focused mindset and put it to what you're talking about you come to the same result we don't need to know everybody's issues in banter we don't Mm. we're not all going to be aware of what everybody's sensitive to but if we're all working on the same path of we're not going to the negatives we're not going to go and searching for your problems to Mm. make sure that we understand we're just going to be mindful of it and move forward with it and that's the word again mindful be mindful Mm. Absolutely, and really. how you—it's how you deal with it when it happens. That's what I mean. I have, I've been having an argument. I want to go to a dentist, uh, and um, uh, and I've been researching different dentists for the work I need doing. And there's this one dentist that somebody recommend this agency recommended. So they're really good. And I looked online, and some of their reviews were really scathing, horrible reviews. 
And they contacted me and said, oh, you know, we, we're happy to have you. I said, no, I've just read some of your reviews. And they said, no, ignore those reviews. We, most of our people are overwhelmingly positive. Why aren't you looking at the positive reviews? I said, because I expect you to have positive reviews. But where the ones that tell me about your compassion and your understanding is the way in which you deal with the negative reviews. That tells me a lot more about your business. And what Absolutely. you're doing is dismissing them. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think some of the bigger companies like um, Amazon have nailed that. Yeah. They, uh, they'll be, everybody raves about their customer service because they will take the bad reviews and deal with that and they will showcase the problem solving, yeah. you know, so it's there for everybody to see. And I think they've nailed that psychology behind that. So it is, it is all about how we deal with it. So, I mean, bringing it back to banter, banter. it is like you say, we're all going to make mistakes in banter. Mm. I think, I think we need to accept that sometimes we're all going to fall fa fall foul to that. Oh, oh, you've you've stepped across somebody's line because we don't know where everybody's line is. Mm. And it's how you deal with that afterwards that tells you whether it was banter or whether it was bullying with intention. Mm. You know, it. I think it is that aftermath that decides that. Yeah. How yeah. do you... Um, so, you know, we're obviously this, we're saying there is a place for banter in certain circumstances and I love that, you know your A and the B scenario that you presented us with. That's a fantastic way of looking at it. What do you think banter's impact is on men's mental health? If I give you, you know, if we look at some of those trade-based roles where there's banter every day, uh, how, how do you think that impacts mental health? And, and I'm glad you said it because it was a context. And again, it, to me, it just goes back to that philosophy is that everybody's carrying a bag of shit. You don't know what's in people's bags. You don't know what people are carrying. And I think it's difficult to have a one answer fits all. It's like a hedgehog. Everybody how, has a point. How did, if you don't mind sharing, G, how did the, the banter that you experienced impact your mental health? It, I mean, the banter didn't start in the police. Right, so let's get that first part right. The what the police did is exasperated it, but it didn't start in the police. It started way before that. You know, I grew up in an environment where I was a foster child in uh, a white foster, a black foster child, white foster. Yeah, I was Chinese before. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was a black foster child in a white environment, so you know there were always jokes about my color. So I was conditioned to accept that kind of banter. I didn't see a problem with it. I then went from being eight years old. I was then kidnapped by my natural parents who took me to London. So I've gone from an all-white environment to an all-black environment. Okay? And a lot of what drove a lot of this stuff was I never had a sense of belonging. I always felt like an outsider. And that's what kind of pushed me to do crazy things to try and fit in because I had no sense of self. I had no sense of place. Um, going to my natural parents, my father's response to me being confused was to beat the crap out of me. 
So I spent a lot of time in and out of children's homes and stuff like that uh, during those eight years. Then he sent me to Nigeria um, or tricked me into going to Nigeria, where part of that time out there, I was I spent uh, a year homeless on the streets of Lagos. Um, I was in Nigeria for about eight years, managed to get my way back to the UK. Um, came back, to, eight years is a long time to be away from somewhere. So I came back again to a world I thought I knew, but eight years, the world has changed a lot. So I've suddenly come back to a world I don't know. So again, I didn't know where to belong. Joining the police was kind of like the first major decision I had made for myself. And I just was desperate for somewhere to belong. Going into the police, like I said, it exasperated some of that stuff because it was it didn't feel like banter in the police. It felt like digs. And I remember being at Hendon and a lot of these comments and microaggressions were taking place. And I went and I sat down with one of the sergeants to explain to him how I was feeling. And I remember I sat there and I talked for about 45 minutes about how this was making me feel. And at the end of it, he just looked at me and he said, you know what your problem is, son? You've got a chip on your shoulder. And I just remember thinking, you haven't heard a word I've said. And over the next few years, things started to build up and build up and build up. And my behavior became more and more erratic to try and fit in. I would spend money like, if I buy everyone a drink, that'll make everyone happy. If I, you know, at one point I took a group of guys out to New York. I took out a loan of 15 grand and took four guys on the team to New York for the weekend. Blew the 15 grand because I wanted them to tell people I'm a good guy. That's how desperate I was to, to be fitting in. And that took me to a place where, I just got to a place where I just couldn't take anymore. Underneath all of that, I'm hiding my sexual orientation. And I got to, a, and I think I got to a place where everything just started to collapse in on itself. The only person who hadn't told me who I was, was me. And I was trying to fulfill everybody else's expectation. And the problem is everybody has a different expectation of who they think you should be. Um, and that, that, that trying to do that just weighed and weighed and weighed and dragged me down. The interesting thing, though, is that if I go back and I see people who knew me then, they all say, God, you were such a laugh. You were the fun. You were the soul of the party. You were great. I remember you. You remember we did this and we did that. And I'm looking at thinking those extreme behaviors were me out of control. And it came to a point where I just ended up standing on a platform in Harrow on the Hill, wanting to commit suicide. Um, I didn't, in case you're wondering. Mm -hmm. uh, well, we did wonder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that, for me, was the major turning point. Can, can I ask you two questions? Yeah. Uh, firstly, and I know you used some of these extreme behaviours to fit in with those yeah. people. But on a general level, do you think even now you use banter to not, not so much to fit in, but to to manage 
stressful situations or where you're unsure or you don't know where someone's coming from. So you'll use banter to break the ice. Yes, I do. But I use it now. I'm more aware of what I'm doing. Mm. As opposed to back then, I was doing it from a place of loss, Mm. confusion, insecurity, fear. So do you think you used it back then to hide that insecurity? Yeah, yeah. Because I think I, I, I see a lot of banter, particularly in the building trades and things like that. Yeah. Uh, Dorman used to be terrible at banter. And it yeah. was like, actually, I now know how weak some of those characters were mm. in their own vulnerabilities. And they used the, the show to, yeah. you know, like a suit of armor, that banter was their yeah. armor. Yeah. Um. But the second question, and I'm sorry, I'm asking all the questions and Ben's meant to be leading this. I want to know how you overcame and changed. Because the man, the man well, I'm took this, to there was a blue pill solution? and a red pill. <laughs> 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 but, but we're solution focused. So yeah. you went through a very challenging time and used banter and people excuse really, really poor behavior, which is unexcusable mm. at any level and termed it as banter. So yeah. there was two elements of banter you went through. But uh, at the end of the day, you're sitting here and apparently you're an award-winning BAFTA Oh, filmmaker. sorry, I've I mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> um, how did you do that? Ah, that That's actually a question that makes me emotional. That's right. You made me emotional. It's only fair. Nice fight. Nice fight. <laughs> Thank you for taking that away. <laughs> I wanted to sit with that feeling for a while. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it and it makes me emotional because I'm proud of myself. I'm nodding my head and nobody can see me, but yeah, I can see it. I can feel it. <laughs> yeah. Listening. I, I, I'm, I'm proud. I, I can't say there was one thing. I can point to several different things. One, one of the biggest ones, and it's only recently that I've really, really, really appreciated this. Uh, part of the way in which I left Nigeria is that I didn't leave. I escaped, and I escaped because there was a guy who I met in Nigeria who was a white guy who was working out there um as an engineer who god knows why just saw me and decided to buy me a ticket back to london like he just out of the goodness of his heart and that showed that what that said to me it's only recently i've sort of really started to really re- appreciate it i was in a place of confusion and loss and anger and resentment and so much stuff hold me down and through all of that he saw something in me that was worth investing in in that one act he changed my life and i i've noticed that ever since that time in some way shape or form and i think i'm doing it more profoundly now but i want to give that feeling to other people and I think that that's become a really good drive for me. It's that 
I want you to feel that you are worth something because I know what it feels like not to be worth something. That That's an amazing story. And, and that moment, you know, it's one of those sliding door moments, which, yeah. you know, we have. But then you went on to say in the police force, yeah, you got so exacerbated by the banter and the conditioning and everything else. Mm. So though that moment happened with you escaping. Before I joined the police. And then you still went through to the point where you was ready to take your life. Yeah. Because I I hadn't fully understand. I hadn't fully understood the, 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 the impact of that moment. When I came out of the breakdown, I remember having, I had a, I had a therapist. Um, and when I came out, I remember the last session I had with him was almost like I called it my um, goodwill hunting moment because uh, we were sitting in a park in um, Paddington. And he said to me, gee, this is our last session, right? He says, but, um, can I give you a bit of advice? And I said, what's that? And he goes, I don't think you should come back to the police. He said, my job is to get people back into the job. He said, I don't think you should come back. I think you should just consider leaving and doing something else because I don't think the police is for you. He said, but it's your decision to make. And uh, it's been great working with you. And I wish you all the best. Bye. And I remember sitting in that park thinking, what do I do? And one of the things that came to me was, yes, there are behaviors and people within the police I don't like, but I loved the profession. Mm-hmm. I and, and that's when I started to realize that I part of my reason for doing the unconscious part of it was I wanted to do what Richard had given me. I wanted to help people. I genuinely wanted to help people. Then I came back. So I came back into police and I got into training. And I was fortunate, a series of fortunate circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. It was at the time of the Stephen Lawrence mm. report. And the department I went into was target or tasked with delivering the outcomes of that report and the training that went with it. And because it was such a high profile department, money was thrown at us. <laughs> and we were taken on some phenomenal workshops. And I had through that time for that I was with them for about three, four years. In that time, I had some phenomenal training. I remember I, I remember going to classes or workshops where you walk in and, and it's all white middle-class people. And I'm the only black person in the room and they start teaching. And to me as a black kid, it's almost like, you're giving me the keys to the candy store. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting there thinking, oh my God, this is how, you, this, is how this shit works? And everyone <laughs> I was going to, my mind was just blown. There's people sitting in that room going, oh yes, this is lovely. And I'm like, lovely, this is awesome. <laughs> Um, and it just I just took to it like a Dr. Walter. And what I found in that process, one of the biggest things, two things I found. One was I don't have to be afraid of myself. Wow, that's profound. Mm-hmm. The second that. one, and the second one was vulnerability is my superpower. Oh, that's so hard to teach. We try and do it all the time. That's it's got to be. But self- those two things are the two things that have been I got from that department. And I think over the years I've just built on those two foundations. And every experience I've had has been about working with those two things. 
And I, I haven't always done it consciously, but I, I'm actually staying with my nephew this week down in uh, Brighton. And he always used to say to me, Uncle, vulnerability is your superpower. He said, you are at your most powerful when you're at your most vulnerable. And I never got it. And it's only recently I've started to do that. And if I could just share one last thing, and I don't know that somebody else, I, about three weeks ago, three, four weeks ago, I, I did an interview for the BBC World Service. And the guy, the producer, the interviewer, the sound engineers were three amazing individuals. Really, they made me feel really comfortable from the off. And when I did the interview, it was supposed to be an hour-long program. Right, recording. We ended up doing four hours. And it was the most, I just let myself be vulnerable. I let go. And I felt them holding that space for me to do that, which was really powerful. And I just went all out. And the result is it was supposed to be an interview that was, that was supposed to come out for Black History Month. And they've turned around and said, no, this is too powerful for Black History Month. We want to do it as a separate standalone so that it can get the credit it deserves. And not only that, I said, it, normally we do one program, but we're going to split this over two because there's just so much there. And in that in that interview, what, what happened for me is that there's about three or four times in that interview, I just burst into tears. And I just let my raw, the rawness of the emotion and the feeling and everything like that. And it was it was an awesome feeling. And I think that, in answer to your question, Gary, when I looked at that, that's what all these years have given me. Right? It's not one key thing. It's not one turning point. There's been little turning points, little things like knobs, somebody twisting and dialing the knobs to try to tune me in. You know, experiences are tuning me in all the time. Uh, well, and this is just where I am today. Based on that then, G. As we talk about one of our main things about Inspired Men Talk and why we're here is because of yeah. this rhetoric that actually men don't talk. Yeah. Um, what would you give as your one piece of advice to anybody who is going through a tough time, struggling with their mental health, whether that's because of banter or if that's another mm. factor in their life? If you had one of those key turning points or those knobs that you would turn, what would that be that you'd share with someone? to help them start that journey of being able to change their mental health and expose their vulnerabilities. Yeah. It's a chapter. Whatever you're going through is a chapter. It's not the whole book. It's not the whole book. And at the time, some chapters are long, some chapters are short, but they're not the whole book. And that's why I think whatever I'm going through, I think this is just a chapter. And I hold that. That gives me that that confidence to work through it, knowing that there's, you know, there, there, I saw an interview, um, not an interview, a program. There's uh, Tom Hanks, Robert De Niro, and a couple of other actors sitting around the table. And Tom Hanks says that if things are going well, everything's successful. Don't worry, it'll pass. <laughs> he said, if if life is going down the tubes, everything's going wrong. Don't worry. This too shall pass. Yeah. And whatever you're in is that phrase of this too shall pass. When you're in it, that, I mean, there's two bits I'll give. That's the first one. The second one I would say, and I say this to groups all the time, is that form a campfire group. And a campfire group is finding that group of people where you can trust, 
where you know you can sit around with them around a the campfire late at night and you don't have to pretend. Yeah, that that that's uh, something we we try and pass on all the time, and it's quite difficult when people are terrified of of being vulnerable. Yeah, and I think you know those two things like you know it shall pass and find that one two three or four people you can just have that conversation with peter's talked about doing it when he's been down the pub with his mates and that but you're when you're in a pickle you look at who you really can trust and they do come through like the man in nigeria there are some amazing people there yeah Hey, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. So where do I and... send the invoice? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I've had the utmost privilege of being able to hear your entire story. And you, you shared various segments of that today, which is part of the reason why I've been quiet, because I know these guys have never heard that. And uh, in their responses and questions will come from it. Um, if people want to know more about your story, G... Where do they go to find it? Where can they listen to it and connect? Um, one of the, I'll say the first place is to go to the film on YouTube, which is called The Black Cop, uh, C-O-P. Uh, make sure you spell it right. Uh, <laughs> um, that's the first thing. It's a 25-minute. That gives a basic entry to my world, so to speak, or the world of geology, as I call it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and outside of that, how do we? How do people? You know, your website. You can you can use social what, media. www.purplefrogconnections.com. Yeah, you just come and and my email address and all that is on there as well, uh, or on LinkedIn under Gamal Tarawa, my name. Uh, my my Twitter handle is Purple Wisdom. Cool. I I I I I could have listened to you all day, and. Interestingly, I, I maybe because we're I'm probably a little bit older than you, but not a lot of difference. But how old are you? Just out of curiosity, <laughs> I 88. No, <laughs> I, I, He's I, the I, size I, of two fat ladies, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, are you I, no, seriously? The 60. I've just this second turned 60 this uh, in the last few weeks. Oh, I'm older than you then. Oh, yeah, to put it in perspective though, nobody in his family. Has ever lived past sixty before? Oh wow! So for him, he's no old. men, no men. So for him, he's old. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Yeah, but it, it and it's but, also profound. Yeah, yeah. But so, so many of your bits you shared mm. have been holding mirror up to me. Um, either because I've been on the wrong side of that, or I've been on that side of it. So. There's a lot of similarities between where you've been and where I've been. And I I was just turning over in my own head that it was when I was 45 to 47 that I started becoming the man I was always supposed to be. Mm. And I'd been and I've been more vulnerable over the last few years. Before that, vulnerability was a weakness and you'd be eaten alive. Yeah. That's where I was brought up, similar to, you know. And actually, it's becoming more and more the person I am. And mm. interestingly, the people around me who knew the old me can't mm. cope with me being open and honest. 
they they found that very difficult for me not to be the person they knew and to be the person who I really am. And I a lifetime of reason or a season. Yeah, and 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 so listening to you, I could listen to you all day. So you know, Thank hopefully, you. we'll either have you on again to tell them more of the story and promote this film of yours. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah. I, Thank you so much for sharing and being so open and honest from me. Yeah, and and I would I would echo that, but and also just say when the when the World Service thing comes out, if it hasn't come out already, please let yeah. us know. I'm sure we'd all be happy to promote that as well across our platforms because it has been genuinely eye opening, fascinating, and and you've triggered some stuff in me. So thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. And I'll only be echoing what everybody else has already said, but it has been really, really fantastic to hear about um, your story and to hear about you and to to shed that different perspective on things that we've already spoken about once, but then just to have that new perspective on it, it's been really, really, really something. So again, without just echoing everybody else, it has really been um, so much of a pleasure to have you on and to hear your story. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, G. Thank you for your friendship, mate. It's one of the best friendships I could ever have. So I really appreciate it. You need to get out more. (laughs) 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 We say that to him. Thank you for listening to our podcast that proves men do talk. If you would like more information or support, then please visit inspiredtochange.biz where you can learn more about us and the Inspired to Change team. And remember, the conversation continues on our social media, Inspired Mentor.